Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, July the 23rd, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, July the 26th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We want to remind you that this is the 31st anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act, and we here at Co-op Radio are celebrating ADA all month long. Please join us. At koop.org, many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 66th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. And as we speak, front and center in the news, being generally misrepresented, is the ongoing issues going on in Cuba and Joe Biden's response to that. I am so blessed, and you are so blessed, that we have as our guest to start off the show Jane Franklin, she's the author of Cuba and the U.S. Empire, A Chronological History. She's written many essays. Jane Franklin is an esteemed historian. I am so excited to have you back on the show, and I wanted to just ask you to share your initial thoughts about ongoing issues going on in Cuba and uh, anything else you'd like to share to give our listenership a better understanding of things to consider in their own interpretations of issues going on in Cuba? Well, Pedro, one of the great pleasures of writing a book about history is that you uncover information people have not seen before. It was either secret or hidden. So in in this particular case of Cuba, there were lots of secret documents that I was able to, to read because they've been declassified. So... One of the great pleasures was getting the information about what the United States had been doing toward Cuba since the revolution began. So I will now read my statement, which includes that, okay? Please do. Please do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. In April 1960, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Lester Mallory sent a decisive secret memo admitting that the majority of Cubans support Fidel Castro and thus the, quote, only foreseeable means of alienating internal support is through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship, concluding that, quote, every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba, to bring about hunger, desperation, 
and overthrow of government. And so began the genocidal war against the Cuban people that has continued ever since. Now, just this week, after 61 years, the terrorists based in Washington, D.C., with the help of COVID-19, succeeded in creating smart mobs with which to bring about hunger, desperation, and the threat of overthrowing the Cuban government. But Cubans responded with a large demonstration of support for their government. What can we do? We can continue to support the Cuban people's desire to end the trade embargo and develop friendship with this heroic island nation. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you, Jane, so much. I I just wanted to just close this segment of the show with another quote that you pointed me towards many years ago. But it was a White House meeting on January 3rd of 1961, and this is by Richard Bissell, the CIA Director of Plans. Documented on page 161 of his book, Reflections of a Cold Warrior, From Yalta to the Bay of Pigs, by Richard M. Bissell, Jr., New Haven, Yale University Press, 1996. And I quote, The president, Eisenhower, noted that he was prepared to move against Castro before Kennedy's inauguration if a really good excuse was provided by Castro, end quote, clearly suggesting that they would do a military intervention. Failing that, and this is a quote, he said, failing that, perhaps we could think of manufacturing something that would be generally acceptable. Bissell further writes, this is but another example of his willingness to use covert actions specifically to fabricate events to achieve his objectives in foreign policy, end quote. Essentially admitting and providing evidence that our government lies to us in order to fix the facts by knowingly misrepresenting them to the American public around the policy. So your quote of Lester Mallory clearly indicates that fixing the facts around the policy. We had our policy figured out before anything Cuba did or didn't do. That we have always known that the majority population of Cuba is behind the revolutionary government. But as you said, Mallory expressed every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba, to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow the government. Those were his words. That is our foreign policy to this day. The only way Cuba can get out from in front of the wrath of the U.S. government is to give up its sovereignty and let the United States, not the majority Cubans, decide their fate, their economic political model, something certainly Castro and the majority of Cubans to this day will not relent on. Nor would we, as a proud and principled citizenry, if we face the same choices and circumstances. Jane Franklin... Thank you for taking the limited time. I know that you have a very busy schedule and you have issues that you need to attend to. So I really appreciate on the 26th of July, this show will will be aired. And I thought it's just so appropriate that the most important event in the history of Cuba history is complemented by the words of Jane Franklin. And Jane, before I let you go, I wanted to let our audience know if they want to access the essays and the very valuable historical documentations of Jane Franklin's work, they can go to janefranklin.info, janefranklin.info. Jane, 
What would they find at janefranklin.info? You will find lots of things, including a book that I previously wrote, which I typeset and did everything for because I thought it was so important, and it wasn't decided that it was important until later by other people. But it's about Cuba's foreign relations. I had fun writing that, too, because so many things turn up that you didn't ever know about, even though you thought you knew all of it about Cuba. Well, I would like to share that I access your chronology of Cuban-U.S. relations on a regular basis to this day. And it is such a great resource because so many people have questions. You can, you can just go to the index and, and, and say, okay, let's look up terrorism, you know, the terrorist, the terrorist events that have occurred in Cuba. And there's a litany of all of the page numbers of, of all of the dates of those terrorist attacks and, and their consequences. And that is just one example of a long list of, of chronological events that have occurred in Cuban history that most Americans are unaware of. Whether it's embargo, whether it's anything you want to know, it's, it's the Bible of information for me. And I wish all books were written that way so we wouldn't have to read a whole book to get to where we want to get. Well, that's great to hear you say that, Pedro. Also, I should point out that in Cuba, it's a beloved book. And when I was down there in 2015, uh, after I had broken my neck and recovered enough to travel, I went to Cuba, and they were having a book party, and I thought maybe there would be 20 people there. And when I walked out there, there were more than 200 people all sitting waiting for me to talk. (laughs) And it was a wonderful day of my life, I'll tell you. The The Cuban audience was just incredibly responsive, you know. Well, it wasn't just the audience. It was dignitaries. I was there, and I'm getting chills down the back of my neck hearing you talk about that. It was just a beautiful event. You know, the Cubans, they really appreciate that their stories are, uh, and the representation of the island is always so twisted when it comes to history and information to get a, a real reflection and an honest reflection and a, and a historical reflection of their history since 1959. Actually, your chronology even starts before that a little bit, is something that was very, very important to them. And I can understand why they received you so, so glowingly. Well, they certainly did, and I will hold that close to my heart forever, you know. Yeah, my, myself, yeah, myself as well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Jane, for your time tonight. And we will look forward to staying in touch. And you please take good care of yourself. And my love to, to Bruce as well and to you. And thank you for bringing light into real darkness. That's Well, thank you, Pedro. Thank you. All right, friend. Okay, that was Jane Franklin, a writer and historian. Uh, she's the author of Cuban Foreign Relations, a chronology, 1959 to 1982 that she referred to, as well as the most recent update of her book, Cuba and the U.S. Empire, a Chronological History, that I alluded to. It was most recently updated in 2016. For more than two decades, Jane was an editor and contributing editor for Cuba Update, the magazine of the Center for Cuban Studies in New York. She has published numerous articles and other publications, including The Nation, The Progressive, 
Progresso Weekly, Z Magazine. She's also published poems and film reviews and has lectured about U.S. policy towards Cuba, Vietnam, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Panama. Born in 1934, she was raised on a tobacco farm in North Carolina, and she married H. Bruce Franklin in 1956. And her greatest treasures are her three children and six grandchildren. Again, you can access a powerful library of information regarding Cuba and other writings by Jane Franklin at janefranklin.info. There are a number of connected themes that shape our understandings of world politics. I've discovered so many of them to be false understandings and wonder why did it take so long for us to see the lies of our government when it came to Vietnam, the lies of weapons of mass destruction, Saddam Hussein harboring al-Qaeda terrorists, and that Saddam Hussein was complicit in 9-11. Why do we believe those lies? And so many of us still do. When it came to Libya, Syria, and the Ukraine, why have we created such damage to those world populations of those countries, but are largely unaware of it? My studies have led me to the primacy of our social economic system that is predicated on the largest wealth inequality ratios in the developed world. As a result, the information that's made available to us and not made available to us is what shapes our collective points of view. But as Jane Franklin indicated, many important factors and historical contexts are simply left out. And who is it that largely owns our media? They are owned and controlled by these wealthy interests who, I'm sure, wish to maintain that economic privileged dominance. One such article that cited these dangers was entitled The Dangers of the Concentration of Media Ownership. It was recently published back in February 8th, 2021 by Kia Raoulpula from the berkeleyhijacket.com site. And basically, it is just documenting the concentration of the media that now just six media conglomerates control 90% of the information news consumed by the U.S. public. They now control U.S. media, and as a result, the diversity of viewpoints are reduced and the potential for the suppression of information that is at odds with the interests of the parent corporations that own the media and own our country is the driving force of the informational environment in which we are submerged in. Now, it may appear that there is a diversity of viewpoints when you look at CNN and MSNBC compared to, say, Fox News when it comes to social issues or immigration issues or things of that sort. These are important domestic issues. But when it comes to foreign policy, there is a uniform position that has hidden from the American public the immense humanitarian disasters our foreign policy has promoted throughout the world. And it is in that informational environment that the crisis in Cuba is presented to the American public. In the balance of the show, we wanted to focus our attention on many of the misrepresentations about Cuba, but also many of the important historical actions and inputs that Cuba has had on the developing world. Just like when you 
judge the character of a friend or another person. You do it on the merit of, of what they have done or not what they have said they're going to do or pretend to do, but their actual behavioral and material outcomes of, of that behavior. While we often hear that the United States is the leader of the free world, what is it that Cuba has brought to the developed world? Also, we're going to feature words of Nelson Mandela, who for most people epitomizes integrity and truth-seeking. And why is it that his positions on Cuba are so opposite to those of the United States? Who are we to believe? American policy of the last 60-plus years or Nelson Mandela? You will be the decider. But before we turn to Nelson Mandela clips on the Cuban Revolution, he will be referring to the behavior of the United States and other Western nations when it came to apartheid South Africa and his own imprisonment. He will also allude to the role Cuba played in the overthrow of apartheid by its decisive actions in Angola. But first, we speak to who was the greatest defender of apartheid South Africa and the terror they heaped on and sought to expand throughout the whole southern cone of Africa and beyond on black Africans. Bassam Haddad, H-A-D-D-A-D, a February 5, 2012, source, a piece on U.S. on UN Veto, disgusting, shameful, deplorable, a travesty, really? And in his piece, he listed a quick listing of the United States record of veto use at the United Nations, 1972 to 2011. In 1978, a UN resolution called for developed countries to increase the quantity and quality of development assistance to underdeveloped countries. The U.S. vetoed it. In 1979, a UN resolution called for an end to all military and nuclear collaboration with the apartheid South Africa. The U.S. vetoed it. In 1979, another U.N. resolution called for the strengthening of the arms embargo against South Africa. U.S. vetoed it. In 1979, another U.N. resolution which sought to offer assistance to all oppressed people of South Africa and their liberation movement was vetoed by the United States. 1979, another UN resolution which sought to oppose support for intervention in the internal or external affairs of states was vetoed by the United States. Why would we veto what is an international law, namely the sanctity of not messing with the internal affairs of another country? Anyhow, on March 9th, 1988, this from a different source, the U.S. and Britain veto UN moved to impose penalties on Pretoria. This is a New York Times 1988, March 9th article. The United States and Britain vetoed a Security Council resolution today that would have imposed an oil embargo and other sanctions against South Africa for its imposition of restrictions on 17 anti-apartheid groups. Returning back to our original source, 1981, a number of UN resolutions, seven of them, condemning South Africa for attacks on neighboring states, condemning apartheid, and attempts to strengthen sanctions. All seven resolutions were vetoed by the United States. Here we are today. The United States has sanctions on how we've discussed in previous shows, close to one-third of the world population. But we wouldn't sanction apartheid South Africa. Time and time again, we would not sanction apartheid South Africa, yet our sanctions have been responsible for millions of deaths and are having that same impact throughout the world today. 
returning to our source. Among those 1981 vetoed resolutions by the United States, a May 22nd, 81 veto at the UN International Conference on Sanctions Against South Africa, quote, condemns the April 30th, 1981 Security Council veto by Western powers of draft sanctions against South Africa for its illegal occupation of Namibia. August 31st, 1981, U.S. delegate vetoes U.N. Security Council resolution to condemn South Africa. The same year, 1981, the U.N. resolution affirming the right of every state to choose its economic and social system in accord with the will of its people without outside interference in whatever form it takes was vetoed by the United States. Essentially, we're saying you cannot choose your own government. And then a different source. On March 13, 1987, the Los Angeles Times reported in an article entitled Sweden to End All Trade with South Africa. This is the AP. It's reporting that on February 20th, 1987, the United States and Britain on February 20th, 1987, vetoed a Security Council resolution calling for binding sanctions against South Africa. The ban also covers Southwest Africa or Namibia the territory ruled by South Africa in violation of UN resolutions. So Sweden, on March 12, 1987, ordered an end to all trade with South Africa in one of the harshest actions so far by an industrialized nation against apartheid. The government said it was a unique deviation taken in frustration over the situation in South Africa and the UN failure to impose mandatory international sanctions to force South Africa's government to end the apartheid system of racial segregation. Basically, the UN had their hands tied by the vetoes of the United States. And this was an action taken by Sweden independently. And then just to finish this segment up, this is a UPI article by Ivan Zverina, Z-V-E-R-I-N-A, uh, entitled U.S. Britain Veto South African sanctions, written on April the 9th, 1987, the United States and Britain cast a double veto Thursday in the United Nations Security Council to block sanctions against South Africa for its occupation of mineral-rich Namibia, Southwest Africa, a former German colony. It has been administered by South Africa since the end of World War I, almost 70 years ago. In 1965, the United Nations General Assembly voted UN jurisdiction over the territory and named it Namibia. For 21 years, guerrillas of Southwest Africa, People's Organization, have waged a war against South Africa forces in Namibia. For the last 10 years, with the backing of Angolan and Cuban troops in neighboring Angola. In 1978, the Security Council adopted a plan for UN supervised elections in Namibia and independence, but South Africa insists that the Cuban troops, some 40,000 in Angola, must be withdrawn before elections can be held. Keep in mind that South Africa apartheid is the aggressor and that the Cubans came to the aid of Angola at the request of Angolans. In a April 3rd, 2008 article by Piero Gliasis, an esteemed historian on Quito Quanavale and the Cuban and African conflict. He indicated that 2008 marked the 20th anniversary of the opening 
of the Battle of Quito Quanavale in southeastern Angola. It was a series of confrontations from August 1987 to March 1988 that came to be known as the Battle of Quito Quanavale. Quito Quanavale, Angola, was the site of the largest battle on African soil since World War II. In fact, by the end of the conflict, Cuba had lost over 2,000 of its own military and internationalists. It pitted the armed forces of apartheid South Africa against the Cuban army and Angolan forces. And in fact, this was the decisive victory for Angola and de decisive defeat for the South African apartheid army, which suffered its first defeat and fatal defeat, actually, as it marked the demise of apartheid South Africa. Nelson Mandela even said, quote, that Quito Quanavale was the turning point for the liberation of our continent and my people from the scourge of apartheid, end quote. So you have Nelson Mandela basically confirming that Cuba's efforts were decisive in the overthrow of the greatest scourge one can imagine, namely apartheid. Juxtapose that to all of the vetoes that the United States did in order to keep that very same apartheid government from getting sanctioned. And you begin to realize why Mandela was such a friend of Fidel and Cuba. In addition to the military defeat of apartheid, the internationalism of Cuba in the form of doctors and training doctors and providing all sorts of international aid to developing nations in Africa, even setting up a medical university in Africa. This is what Mandela will be speaking to in the upcoming clips. So to kind of sum up the historical context of this effort to overthrow apartheid that Cuba played a large part in, South Africa's invasion of Angola was in 1975, and when South Africa's intervention ended, Washington continued its destabilization efforts by supporting UNITA, whose leader Jonas Savimbe eventually died in a battle in February of 2002. But the Cuban decision to send troops to Angola uh, came from the formal request from Angola and was made without informing Russia. And the Cubans acted with minimal assistance, actually, from the Kremlin in the form of air transportation. And in fact, Fidel was instrumental in the battle plans that resulted in the success of the repelling of the South African army. Therefore, it was Cuban soldiers who, together with the Angolans, that defeated the South Africans. Pretoria's real motives, similar to that of the United States, were oil and diamonds, abundant resources in a now devastated nation. Compare the imperial motivations of South Africa and the United States to Cuba. When Cuba left Angola, all they brought home were their soldiers and internationalists. No diamonds, no minerals, no exploitation of the Angolan resources. Such is the nature of an internationalist Cuban foreign policy. The largest part of that internationalist policy is health aid throughout the world. Dr. Wilkie Delgado Carrillo, he's a Cuban doctor and professor of merit of the Higher Institute of Medical Sciences of Santiago de Cuba. This is data that's 2019, so it's fairly current. We need to take a brief break for some PSAs. We'll be right back with this data. Don't touch that dial. 